Chapter 15, Education for Life. A Persian came to the director of our trade school. As education goes, he was highly educated. He had taken several degrees, both in Europe and in the United States. He was the master of many languages, and had just finished four years of special work in one of our leading universities. He had not been seeking education for its own sake. He wanted to help his fellow Persians, and he was visiting our plant before he left for home because we have in our employ a large number of Persians. It was at the end of his visit that he talked with our director, and he said sadly, My education began in words and ended in words, and when I go back to my country, I have nothing to offer my people. And he was right. He had nothing. He had been educated away from life. He had been taught the contents of a certain number of books, but he had not been taught how to better the living conditions of his people. He did not even know how to earn his own living, except by teaching to others the words which had been taught to him. He could do very little that a phonograph could not do, and it cost more to keep him than to keep a phonograph. Yet he had been inspected and stamped as educated. But educated for what? That is the question he was asking himself. We are in favor of what might be called utilitarian education, although not at all in favor of what passes for utilitarian education. We believe that, first of all, a man should be able to earn his own living, and that any education which does not so fit him is useless. Second, we believe that true education will turn a man's mind toward work and not away from it, and will enable him to think, and thus to earn a better living not only for himself, but also for those about him. What often passes for a utilitarian education is only a scrappy training in a great number of wholly useless odds and ends. If you train a child to expect that things will drop easily into his lap upon his slightest whine, if you train the mind to regard life as a benevolent system of providence, if you train a boy to look for favors from others instead of looking to his own powers to create or command what he needs, then already the seeds of dependence are sown, the mind and will are warped, and life is crippled. Emphasis is laid on this particular phase of weakness because it is so common. Unintentionally, a rather soft teaching concerning the providence of the world has fostered it. Doubtless there is a providence which, from an invisible plane, fulfills what is lacking in men's most sincere efforts. Human experience seems to indicate that. Men's efforts seem at times to start up corresponding currents of power, which manifest themselves at critical moments to complete a process or to give a favorable turn to seemingly unfavorable circumstances. The experience of men in all generations seems too clear on this point to leave much doubt about it. But this providence is not the servant of the weak. It is for those who have put forth their utmost strength. They may be weak at the moment, but they are not weak by reason of being naturally weak, but by reason of being strong and of having given all their strength to a cause or a task. This catching up, then, of the last threads, or supplying the last touch, this providence, as men call it, comes to the help of the strong, who, being unsparing of their strength, have drained it for the moment. This is simply to say, in another way, what is already held in the old saying, God helps those who help themselves. We hold that it is part of our industrial duty 
That is part of our service that supports the wage motive to help people to help themselves. We believe that what is called being charitable is a particularly mean form of self-glorification. Mean because while it pretends to aid, it really hurts. The giver to charity gets a certain cheap satisfaction out of being regarded as a kind and generous man. This would be harmless enough in itself were it not that the recipients of charity are usually destroyed. For once you give a man something for nothing, you set him trying to get someone else to give him something for nothing. Charity creates non-producers, and there is no difference at all between a rich drone and a poor drone. Both are burdens on production. It will easily take a generation to wipe out the effects of the dole upon the peoples of Europe. We have, therefore, not attempted to found a university, or otherwise to depart from those things we intimately know. Instead, we have kept ourselves to training boys and men in the practices and ideas of our own industry, believing that here we could do the most good. We have further plans, but they have not matured. It is rather a serious problem to know quite what to do with boys between 16 and 20, for they have just about as much responsibility as healthy young animals. That is something ahead of us. Our first effort was in the direction of helping boys who did not have the chance to help themselves. Our thoughts in this direction have been more fully told in my life and work. We started this school, the Henry Ford Trade School, in October 1916, and we admit to it orphans and widows' sons or others who would have no chance even to learn a trade, let alone to get an education, because whatever they might earn was needed for the support of the home. We planned to make a school which would not only be self-supporting, but in which the students could earn at least as much as, if not more than, they could in some outside employment which had no future. We now have 720 boys in the school, of whom 50 are orphans, 300 the sons of widows, 170 the sons of Ford employees, and 200 from scattered sources. We have to date graduated 400 boys, most of whom have found places in our company. A boy in the beginning is given a scholarship which carries $7.20 a week, and which rises to $18 a week, and in addition each boy gets $2 a month as thrift money to put into the bank, and a hot luncheon at noon. The average scholarship allowance is $12 a week, including a vacation of four weeks. We make this allowance to the boys that they may contribute to the support of themselves and their mothers while they attend our school. The waiting list for the school is now 5,000. From the start, the school has been governed by three principles. First, that the boy is to be kept a boy and not turned into a premature working man. Second, that the academic training is to go hand in hand with the industrial education. And third, that the boy is to be given a sense of responsibility by being trained on articles which are to be used. Nothing is done merely for practice. The instruction is divided into sections, a week in the classroom and two weeks in the shop. So closely does the classroom dovetail with the practical work that the students are able to master a subject in much shorter time than is common in most educational institutions. The whole Ford plant at Highland Park is their textbook and laboratory. Lessons in mathematics become concrete shop problems. Geography is closely allied to export activities, and the metallurgical classes have everything from blast furnaces to heat-treat departments to observe and study in connection with the classroom work. 
The academic course includes English in its usual branches, mechanical drawing, mathematics, including trigonometry, physics, chemistry, metallurgy, and metallography. The industrial course includes the practical application of the principles learned in the classroom, as well as a thorough training on every type of machine used in tool making. The boys produce a few Ford parts, a wide variety of Ford tools, as well as such delicate precision instruments as gauges, which require accuracy to the ten-thousandth of an inch. Most of the cutaway motors seen in Ford sales rooms are made by the boys out of rejected parts. All work done in the shops is bought by the Ford Motor Company if it passes inspection. This makes the school practically self-supporting, besides making the boys realize that they have a responsibility that extends outside of the classroom. It is recognized that the average boy would far rather play than study or work, so the usual sports and athletics associated with school days are encouraged. During academic periods, an hour a day is spent on the athletic field under competent instruction. The school has its football, baseball, and basketball teams, and is a force to be reckoned with in local scholastic athletics. The large auditorium is at the disposal of the boys every Friday for entertainments. When a boy graduates at 18, he is master of a highly paid trade by which he may earn money enough to continue his education if he so desires. If not, he is skilled enough to command a good job anywhere, though he is first offered a position with the Ford Motor Company. Inasmuch as every boy has earned his way, he need feel under no obligation to the company after he has graduated, though as a matter of fact, most of the boys prefer to work for the company. It must be remembered that the boys in this school are not selected because they are bright and promising. They are selected because they need the money and opportunity. Without our interest, some of them would go on the human scrap heap. The oldest of graduates is only 25, but already some of these graduates are showing their heads above the crowd. One is now a foreman. Several others are assistants to executives and in line for promotion, while those who are at machines in the shops are mostly doing so well that it will be a matter of only a short while before they have higher places. But the most significant fact is that the foremen of departments are glad to get the boys on graduation. We do not in general take boys who are physically unfit, but there have been exceptions. I recall two who were lamed by infantile paralysis, and once we take a boy, we look after him. For instance, one boy was hurt by an automobile on the street and developed a tubercular knee. He had a number of operations and was in the Ford Hospital for perhaps a year, but not as a charity patient. The hospital account was merely charged to the boy, and someday he will probably pay it. We had a Chinese-Filipino boy who started his savings because of a hospital bill. He had run away from home, worked his way across the Pacific, and somehow managed to reach Detroit, where he was picked up by the police. He had heard of our industries and wanted to work in them. He was an exceptional case, and we took him into the trade school. He was not a good student. Soon he fell ill. We sent him to the hospital where he ran up a bill of $75. These bills are not deducted from the pay of the students unless they so request, but this youngster really wanted to pay his bill. Each week he paid something on account, and when he had liquidated the bill, he had so formed the habit of saving that he each week put a sum in bank, and when finally he quit the school, he was a rover, he had $540 in the bank. He had landed in Detroit with 75 cents.
The average earnings of the graduates who have been out four years are between eight and nine dollars a day, or approximately twenty-five hundred dollars a year, which is, I believe, rather higher than the average earnings of college graduates. If we were out for a record, we should pick our boys differently, but we are out to help those who are most in need of help. Many of the graduates of the trade school go forward into another school, which is every day increasing in importance, and that is our apprentice school. The vital need of the company is for expert toolmakers. Our productive machinery is so arranged that most of the jobs can be learned in less than a day. But in order that the machinery may be kept in condition to operate, and also for building machinery, we need a large force of skilled machinists. Therefore, we opened an apprentice school for training men between the ages of 18 and 30 to be what are technically known as toolmakers. The course is three years and it is open to anyone in the factory under the age of 30. It is a self-supporting school. The apprentices put in eight hours a day in the tool rooms, being guided by the foreman and a special instructor, and each week they receive lessons in mathematics and mechanical drawing. At the time of writing, 1,700 are enrolled in the school, and their wages average from $6 to $7.60 per day. They fully earn their money. All of this education may be classed as utilitarian, and it has to be, but it does not seem to draw the boys or the men away from going farther with education. A certain number naturally stop learning when the teaching stops. That is the way of human nature. But a surprisingly large number continue in night schools to get more general and special education. Indeed, we have had so many applications for the day shifts in order that the men might go to night school that we have been forced to make a rule against placing a man in a day shift for any educational reason, because it seemed unfair to make some men work at night simply because others wanted to work during the day. The third section of our educational work is what we call the service school, the purpose of which is partly to prepare foreign-born students for work in our branches abroad, but more largely to spread the idea of our methods of production. For we have no trade secrets. If we are doing anything which another manufacturer may find use for, then we want that manufacturer to have the benefit of what knowledge we possess. That we take as our duty. We should like to create, in every country, a nucleus of workers having a thorough knowledge of modern transportational, power, and haulage units, and an understanding of the principles and technique of modern industrial production. To ground the student thoroughly in this knowledge, he works in department after department. Instructors call on each student while he is at work, observe his progress, and ask him questions about his job. The cooperation of department foremen is, of course, absolutely necessary to the efficient functioning of the system, and such cooperation has been given in an extremely satisfying degree. Faithful, conscientious effort on the part of the student is also necessary, and the men as a whole have acquitted themselves well. No student is allowed to go from one department to another until he has mastered his present work. Owing, no doubt, to the widely different environments from which many of the students have come, mastery of the phases of manufacture presents varied degrees of difficulty. In nearly every instance, however, the tenacity of the student has overcome the problems at last. The course is two years, and the students are paid six dollars a day, which they earn. We have at present 450 students, many of whom are college graduates. They include 100 Chinese, 84 Hindus, 20 Mexicans, 20 Italians, 50 Filipinos, 
12 Czechoslovakians, 25 Persians, and 25 Puerto Ricans. We have also on the way a large number of Russians, 25 Turks, and a group from Afghanistan. The Chinese are among our best students. They are slow but extremely thorough. We have had students from nearly every country in the world. The least adaptive of all our students, whatever the nationality, are those who come with preconceived notions. Their progress is naturally difficult and slow, but we do our best to fit them to carry the best industrial practices to their own people. We believe that in doing this, we are helping to solve international problems in a practical way.